there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. Bill Murray was the very first guest on the debut episode of Late Night with David Letterman, and the number one song in America was Centerfold by the Jay Giles Band. Lawrence Welk's final episode was aired, forcing a generation of grandparents to find a new show to fall asleep in front of. And on the last day of the month, the PR nationalist group set off a bomb on Wall Street. It was a chaotic time, and it was a weird month of movies in February of 1982. Hi, everybody. I'm Drew McWeeny, and as always, I'm joined from Philadelphia by my co-host, MC80s All Over, Scott Weinberg. Yo, my name is Scott, and I'm here to talk movies. If you don't want to listen, you know that's so groovy, but... <laughs> uh, how's everything else been, man? Same old stuff, man. I'm psyched. We're ready to roll on 1982. It's exciting to start another year. 82 is about when it clicked that movies are my thing. February of 82, I was still 11, and I had gone movie nuts by this point. I didn't know that the summer we were about to have was going to have the impact it had on me, just the sheer volume of classics that would be coming out. But this was the summer where I started to feel really engaged. I remember I was I went to my first science fiction convention in the spring, and I walked away with a hall of stuff that then to me, became tied to all those movies that came out that summer. Like I had a pads of paper that had the movie poster printed so that you were using that as your stationery. And I had a pad for Blade Runner and I had a pad for Conan and none of them had come out yet. And I just remember how exciting it was to be a movie fan heading into the summer of 82. And February of 82 was a weird, weird month. It does feel more like what we think of as the traditional dump months when you look at the 80s in January, February, even March. There's always buried treasure in, in these months. And if not buried treasure, then stink piles that deserve to be ridiculed there. Well, listen, if you're a fan of what we've been doing so far, I just want to ask you to check us out on Patreon. It's a chance for you to help financially support the creation of this show. We are a completely independent program and we don't have any advertising. Right now, you are the ones underwriting this five-year project and we want to thank you for that. Things are heating up on the book. We are starting to work more on that. Uh, we are going to do a special episode for you guys to join us via Skype and we're going to be setting new reward levels soon. So onward and upward, please go to www.patreon.com slash 80s all over or visit us at 80sallover.com and visit the 80s all over store where you can support us by picking up something that we've talked about here on the show via Amazon. So we're going to dig in. And this month, uh, sometimes it feels like it's horror heavy. Sometimes it feels action heavy. There's no running thread through any of this. So let's just jump in with a movie that I had never even heard of made by uh, literally produced by one of my favorite bands of all time. So I'm doubly astounded. I had no idea what McVicker even was. 
Andrew, what's your take on Roger Daltrey as an actor? Definitely has a, a, a charisma and a screen presence, and he's like he's like interesting to watch. But when it comes to emoting dialogue and and, and conveying emotion, uh, he's not a great actor. I think the best thing he has is attitude because he has this great punk attitude that it, it served him well in the early days of the Who. Certainly, a lot of people our age grew up and they had already become sort of a stadium act and they were on their way out. And, uh, you know, Keith Moon was gone. So they weren't the Who that had once existed. So we kind of grew up with the tamer version of the Who. But the Who were they were nuts when they started. And so I do think there was this anti-authoritarian streak that makes sense when you see McVicker for them to be producers and for Daltrey to star in it. And what really struck me was I had no idea all this music that he had written. I've never heard that album. That's the best thing about the film is the score, I think, because <laughs> in many ways it's a fairly standard convict movie where half the, half the film is him uh, being a tough con in a brutal prison, and then um, he becomes a journalist, but that's not really touched upon all that effectively. So it's like you kind of feel like, well, what's the third act? Where are we heading? Or is he Does he have either redemption or further damaging himself? And then it just kind of wraps everything up real quick. And this just felt like um, an ego, kind of a star vehicle. And little wonder, because McVicker actually wrote the script, uh, the actual person this is based on. So I got to think there's a lot of this that is personal mythmaking and not necessarily fact, including the prison escape. Well, the prison escape is nonsense. At the end of the film, they make very clear that it, it's not entirely based on fact. To be fair, he does, he's not painting himself as a uh, as a, a choir boy. The movie this reminds me of, and this is like the bad version of that movie, it reminds me a lot of Bronson. And Bronson is what happens if a great filmmaker gets hold of a character who's not really much of a character, but he can build a film about their world and about the way they see things that somehow makes them feel more important. Yes, Bronson feels like almost a, like a next-gen improvement on a film like McVicker. And if you like prison movies, it's definitely watchable. But So we go on from a, uh, a dark prison drama to a oddly dark Disney drama, Night Crossing. The East German border, 836 miles of barbed wire walls, armed guards, and landmines. On September 15th, 1979, two families tried to cross it. Hey, hey, hey. Emergency alert. The most daring escape attempt of our time. It would only take 28 minutes. And a miracle. Night Crossing, rated PG. Um, Night Crossing is uh, both dull and remarkable in the fact that I don't believe anything in terms of the way it unfolds on screen. And it's, yeah, it's, it feels a lot like McVicker, which is like, you know what? I bet you about 18% of this is true. Maybe 20. It's crazy the way it's structured. They build up to the first hot air balloon. They go over the wall. You think that's the end of the movie. 22 minutes in, they crash. Then they do the whole thing again. And I started laughing at the idea. Maybe this is just going to be like 15 attempts across the wall. And they're just going to have to keep building high 70 feet. It's like a Monty Python sketch. They they crash every 50 yards and have to rebuild the, the, the balloon. It's an admirable film because you could see, like you said uh, several episodes ago, Drew, Disney trying to find their feet in the live action arena. They, they were struggling even in the animated arena, but still not as poorly, not as nearly as poorly as they were in the live action arena. Like you can admire them trying to branch out. I admire the attempt. I, there's some really weird choices. Here's the weirdest choice and one that I just couldn't get my head around. So the German bad guys all speak with heavy accents. Everybody else, including Bo Bridges and John Hurt, are just themselves. So you're not sure, are they supposed to be German? Because they all German last names, and they all seem like they're German nationals. You just nailed one of the two things about the film I like very much. Uh, John Hurt is fantastic. You know, none of the dialogue is all that, you know, stellar, but he is a great 
lead in this movie. I love him. And also a Jerry Goldsmith score, which sounds a lot like a lot of his other scores. I mean, so so this has a score that feels kind of familiar, even if you've never seen Night Crossing. It's hard to get around the fact that most of this movie is about the entire weight of the German military trying to track down a family building hot air balloons and failing miserably. It's very strange. And literally, it's like they stop everything else in Germany and they're like, we must find this balloon maker. But that Goldsmith score, you're right, man. It almost carries it off. And it's a real testament to the fact that with the right guy composing, you can take images that are paint-drying dull and somehow give them an urgency and a pulse. And God bless Goldsmith. He almost makes you believe that watching a balloon slowly move through the air is thrilling. We now move on to a film that is infamous for some Golden Globe malfeasance, Butterfly. A man of honor. Doesn't it shame you just a little bit to go making up to every single man you meet? What's to be ashamed of? And a woman with none. What happens between them will change both of them for better, for worse, forever. <laughs> Stacy Keach, Lois Nettleton, Orson Welles, Stuart Whitman, Edward Albert, James Franciscus, and introducing Pia Zadora, Butterfly. A film seemingly inspired by the great works of John Derrick. Yes? I would say that there's some John Derrick in here. You know, we talk about trends a lot, about how things kind of, there's cycles that happen in movies, and we'll see some of them play out. One of the cycles that's already begun, and in fact, you were very clear about your adoration for the cycle, was the idea of updating film noir with a little bit more sex, with a little bit more um, adult content, with letting them lean into the R rating. Butterfly, also based on the work of James Cain, is the ugly, inbred trailer park cousin to those movies. Look up the complete works of James Cain, and you could see them going, God, so many good books based on what else is left? Oh, just this one. Stacy Keach plays a guy who is in charge of watching a mine that is no longer operational. Drew, would you say that he's waiting for some oral sex? Sorry. Sorry, everybody. I'm go- I retire from the podcast. I'm going to be replaced <laughs> by uh, Ma- Massive Worm. Chris Cargill is going uh, to replace me next week forever and ever. And then some girl shows up in his life, and she says she's his daughter, and she wants to be part of his life and live there with him. And it's Pia Zadora, whose husband produced this movie and who was controversially nominated for Best New Star. One thing we've learned in the first three years of this decade is few things are more obnoxious than a very wealthy man with a young, beautiful wife. Because it's just like, hmm, I have a beautiful young wife. Instead of enjoying my life and treating her well, what I'll do is stick a camera in front of her naked ass and put it in front of 600 million people. That's what I want to do as a film producer and a husband. I gotta say, Pia Zadora is, there's really no other way to put it, horrifyingly bad in this film. Drew and I both like to be very open-minded when it comes to film appreciation. If you tell us that you love a movie that we hate, we'll listen. If you were to look me in the eye and tell me that Pia Zadora is a good actor... I would never stop throwing up, to quote Woody Allen. For me, 90% of it is I don't like to, I don't have to like the choices an actor makes as long as I see them making choices. And she looks genuinely startled to be on camera for most of the movie. She really does look like a stunned mannequin. 
the movie builds to a preposterous, I think, 17 hour long courtroom sequence in which they lay out of this exposition. There's 19 reversals and the judge in charge of the trial is the great legendary Orson Welles. I have no idea what's going on, but Orson Welles looks like he's on a vodka IV because he is man. It's almost worth watching just for that last stretch because it's bad filmmaking that has hopped the track and is a train through the desert at this point. Like, even if it was just mindless, but still alluring and, 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 and sexy, I'd be like, all right, it was made to be sexy. I get it. And it works. It is sexy. It's not. It's goofy and dull. <laughs> but this is an Ennio Morricone score. Yeah. The thing about Ennio is he does not mind recycling. And you'll hear, you know, you mentioned that the Goldsmith sounded like so much like Goldsmith. Uh, Ennio will literally just borrow cues, if he, especially if he feels like you probably haven't seen the other movie. He has no problem doing that. This is like a snippets, odds and end bin of a score where he just went, yeah, yeah, I got all this stuff sitting around. I'll just slap it on there. All right, moving on. Forget Butterfly. Drew, what do you got? You got an action sequel for us. One thing that I always like to look at when I see a part two is how closely does it hew tonally and thematically to the first one? Is it complementary to the first film? Is it completely opposite? Is it a betrayal of the first film? I, I would love to hear, Drew, I would love to hear your take on this question regarding Michael Winner's Death Wish 2. They did it before. They're doing it again. And they'll keep right on doing it unless someone stops them. When murder and rape invade your home, when the cops can't stop it, Bronson will his way. Charles Bronson in Death Wish 2. Rated R. The first Death Wish was, you know, based on a book by Brian Garfield. It is essentially a social drama. It is a reaction to the idea that as people were starting to get more and more paranoid about crime in cities and what could or couldn't be done by private citizens, Paul Kersey, played by Charles Bronson, uh, his family goes through a tragedy. He decides to go out and start becoming a vigilante. And the first movie is really about how he quickly loses his moral compass. He kills anybody who gets in his path. He's not the hero of that movie. It's really about the cops versus him. And will they get him? And do we want them to get him? This one kicked off the first of, I think it's four sequels total. Increasingly, they just become about him getting revenge very specifically on people. So they have to kill family members and friends and pets and anything they can kill to make him keep going back out for each of these movies. So I think the second film begins this totally different franchise, and it is a shitty franchise. Yeah, this is a gross fucking movie. It feels like violence porn. Here's a degrading scene. Here's some misery. Now here's your catharsis. He shot the guy in the head. Now here's your catharsis. He shot the guy in the balls. It gets really tiring to be treated like a Pavlov dog in a Death Wish movie. That bothers me. I'm not a dog. You don't have to just go rape. Now you're angry. Revenge. Now you're happy. Fuck you. I don't, I don't like that. They pile so much garbage onto him and so much over-the-top horror and violence. Why do you need an extended, horrific sequence of his maid being repeatedly raped? The guy that wrote the books, um, he really didn't like the first film. He, he felt like the first film missed the point as well and played Bronson as too much of a conventional hero. So the James Wan movie, Death Sentence, is actually based on the sequel to Death Wish. 
And he wrote it because he wanted to show, no, no, this character is broken and wrong and dangerous and not to be admired. So, of course, Golan and Globus, when they bought the rights from Dino De Laurentiis to make this, they threw the book out completely and didn't want to use Garfield's. They wanted him to be a hero. And what I find funny is they gave interview after interview when this thing was in production about how this is not exploitation. This is about reality. And it is so exploitative and so gross and fake that it becomes, I think, actually pointless. If we were comparing this to a slasher movie, it would be just one of the lowest end slasher movies. It would be boring characters, boring characters, really shitty dialogue, kill more talk, kill, more talk, and we'd be like, Death Wish 2, shitty slasher sequel. Like, I'm not a huge fan of the original Death Wish. I do think it's a pretty decent film. It has some interesting things to say about vengeance and crime and whatnot. But I don't think it's a great film. I think Death Sentence, James Wan's Death Sentence, is a considerably more interesting film than the original Death Wish. Well, yeah, and I think it's a really good take on what this is supposed to be, which is about the destruction of the person's doing it. Right, it's not supposed to be... Well, I mean, I guess it's not my job to tell even Michael fucking Winner what his job is. But the goal of this kind of movie is not, I'm going to cheer when these rapists get shot in the face. No, the challenge of this movie is a good man is devolving. And uh, one thing I would like to mention to our listeners, if you want to uh, hear a little bit more on this movie, hop onto YouTube and do a search for Michael Winner, Death Wish 2, A Very Spirited Debate. Two journalists in the early 80s speaking with Michael Winner on a British talk show. The woman interviewing him makes some fantastic points. Uh, and the host of the show just busts Winner's balls a couple times, and it's really funny. We can run through and say who survived this movie. Lawrence Fishburne survived this movie. Uh, Jill Ireland, Mrs. Charles Bronson, she survived this movie. The great Vincent Gardenia, most of our listeners will know as Mr. Mushnick from Little Shop of Horrors. Uh, and, and before we close, even though I think it's safe to say we both hate this movie, we'd be remiss in not at least mentioning who did the score. Jimmy Page, and it's a great score. It's a great score for a different movie. It's not for this movie at all. But I really, as a standalone recording, it took me years and years and years to find... Uh, a version of this and a friend a collector finally came up with it just as a standalone piece of music it's pretty great and i guess winner and jimmy page were neighbors and that's how it ended up happening for that alone i i'm kind of glad that the weird collision happened but this sets the template and it is a despicable template if you were to cut out the maid rape scene completely and cut down the daughter stuff to make it more implied and just left everything else, it's still a terrible movie. It's It has no pacing, it has no energy, it has no uh, charm, humor, wit, nothing. It's just stock kills. It's just dull. So this next one is uh, from a director we've already covered twice on the podcast. Uh, this may well be the biggest of his movies, uh, and it was certainly in a run where he had kind of broken through put out this crime thriller that was Canadian. I am kind of delighted, for good and bad reasons, to have finally seen The Amateur. It's about the terrorists. He wants them killed. I don't want to kill them myself. I don't want them going over that border. If he's already across, I don't want him coming out. The last 11 minutes will rivet you to your seat. John Savage is the amateur rated R. This is one that I surprised Drew on because it had been on HBO a couple times when I was a kid. And I liked John Savage, who most people will know from The Deer Hunter, kind of vanished. 
And he's a good actor, John Savage. And and Christopher Plummer, who I freaking love. You could watch any any movie with Christopher Plummer. And uh, unfortunately, The Amateur is that kind of movie where it's a very dry spy thriller and the lead performances are probably the most interesting thing about it. It's um, a guy who works for the CIA, but he works in a very low um, sort of peripheral position as a cryptographer. He's not like James Bond by any means. It loses his fiance in a terrorist attack as he is drawn further into the business and given more and more hands-on wet field work to do, starts to unravel that he is not doing what he thinks he's doing. And all that makes it sound a lot more exciting and perhaps tightly scripted than it is. It is, uh, I guess, one of those movies that's probably forgotten for a reason. And here's the important thing about it is it's kind of, I think Fox was having a moment where they were looking at movies that were being produced in like Canada and released in Canada first, they were watching how they did. And if they caught fire there, then they'd release them. But it was never simultaneous. And you got the feeling that Fox was using uh, Canada almost like the uh, the Bush League for films, where the amateur played for a little while, and then they went, okay, well, it's doing well. Let's put it out in America. They had a giant hit with that formula a little later in the year. But I think this this was sort of a test run, just distribution-wise, it's not a bad model for Fox at the time to kind of use as, all right, this might actually have enough legs to get more people watching. Our next movie is one that I was absolutely fascinated by when it came out. Um, and again, a movie that came out in other areas first in 1981, and then finally in 1982 made it to America. It is a unique take on the adventure movie. It's called Quest for Fire. 20th Century Fox presents an extraordinary science fantasy adventure. Quest for Fire. Quest for Fire. Rated R. What a cool idea uh, to, to say, hey, uh, we want to write like a quest movie. We want it to be early man, and of course there will be no natural dialogue, no English, no spoken dialogue, and we'll leave it up to the audience to like get the themes and the motivations. We're going to leave it up to people to figure it all out. It's just fascinating. It is beautiful to look at. Clan of the Cave Bear tried it and didn't really pull it off because I think the key to a movie like this is your cinematographer. And man, oh man, is this movie shot like a dark dream. The movie has a crazy sense of humor underneath what is... Very strange and surreal. And it's like uh, pointing out like the the natural foibles of the human animal. It's not laughing at their plight. It's laughing in an empathetic way and saying, see, we've been struggling since day one. Jean-Jacques Noe is a really interesting filmmaker. And, I, you know, I, I give him a lot of credit for the way he approached this, where very famously they brought in Anthony Burgess, who wrote Clockwork Orange, the novel, to help develop the language. You've got Everett McGill, you've got Ron Perlman, and you've got Namir El-Khadi, who are playing the three main cavemen. Honestly, what brave performances. That's a weird phrase. I don't, you know, brave performance. But if this movie doesn't work out, it doesn't look right, you've just made a ridiculous fool out of yourself. Nobody in this movie looks silly, and their performances are all great. And I know you'll get to her, but Ray Dawn Chong also deserves special credit for an amazingly tough performance. She's fantastic in this movie. You know, Perlman has become rightfully so a terrifically well-known actor, but for a long time, he was one of those guys who was a makeup guy and you would hire him because he wore makeup well, because he already was so visually striking that 
And so, and I think Everett McGill is the same way. He is such a striking weirdo. Uh, when they were making this movie, and this was one of those Fangoria things that as I've been rereading old issues, I just read about again, they, all the main guys, their makeup was done by one team and was designed by one team and kind of perfected, but they had no idea how they were going to do the rest of the movie. And then that team kind of crumbled and they had to bring another makeup team in to kind of do cleanup and actually make it all work for the film. There's very different looks for different kinds of uh, cavemen that show up in the movie. And and yet somehow in the end, even the stuff that I don't think totally lands, I'm so fascinated by what they're doing and by how they're trying to make it all work. I love ambition. I love it. And this movie is so ambitious. It's like, hey, if you and I were making Quest for Fire, I'd be like, hey, Drew, why don't we just why don't we just do an action movie? It'd be so much easier. Good God. This is so hard. And that was called 10,000 BC. And it came out after Caveman. And they still went through with it. God bless them. Uh, Quest for Fire is a fantastic film. If uh, if you like this one, you should also check out uh, Jean Jacquinot's subsequent films, The Name of the Rose, and especially The Bear. Uh, we are now moving on to a movie that I have to admit, I'm a little shocked that when I mentioned it, there was many people who came back to me and said, I love that movie. I have never loved this movie. And rewatching it, I'm still baffled by it. We are talking about one of the earliest attempts at turning a weird superhero into a mainstream movie, Swamp Thing. Government agents, scientists, master criminals, secret formulas, monsters, and midgets. None of them belong in this swamp. Only one thing does. The Swamp Thing. The comic book legend lives. Adrian Barbeau and The Swamp Thing. An outrageous pair. The Swamp Thing. Rated PG. I like this movie. I think Wes Craven got the right tone down. He seems to have the the uh, kind of cockeyed, elbow-in-the-ribs style that Swamp Thing, uh, again, not being an expert on the comic book, it's kind of a sardonic, you know, superhero. He's not meant to be taken 100% seriously. I don't, I don't get this movie. I don't, I don't even understand what they're doing. Like, it's so strange to me. And I think it's a weird thing because Swamp Thing on the page is a hard one to get right anyway. And there are runs of Swamp Thing where I think writers who have done beautiful work with it and who have, who have made it interesting. And I don't even mind that they go more towards the action end of things. I think Wes had his strengths. And I don't think comic book was his language. To me, this this is right at that age where we, we couldn't really do superheroes that were extreme and unusual yet because they just it's always dude in a suit. I just I don't like the designs. I think the suits are kind of ugly. And uh, I think the last act of this movie where Louis Jordan turns into the monster and they go after each other for ever. I, I think you make a good point in that. What I like about the film is more character and dialogue based. I would not point to the action uh, as this film's strong suit because it does feel very chintzy and shot very up close. And I think you're right that like this either the comic book style and or kinetic action, not necessarily Craven's forte. You give Swamp Thing to Joe Dante, then you got probably a much different movie. But I do like Louis Jordan in the movie. Uh, Ray Wise is great. Adrian Barbeau is the fun as ever. I wish Ray Wise had hung around. He's actually, it's so funny that he's in this and then later plays a bad guy in Robocop because it's that same thing. It's the person is gone and there's this shell of the thing left that has to now somehow convey the soul of that character we've already gotten to know now trapped in another body. 
with RoboCop, they do it with Peter Weller playing both. Here you have Dick Duroc playing the Swamp Thing, and I don't get any connection to the really charismatic and interesting Ray Wise in that first act. So I never see those two as the same character, and that to me is a problem. Comic book fans and comic book movie fans, they of course probably have a hold Superman 78 and Superman 2 in fairly high regard. And then we had kind of a down period for a pretty long time until Burton Batman. You know, if you were to look at this era, there's like the, the unreleased Fantastic Four. There's the lame-ass Captain America. Uh, there was a really bad Punisher. If you were to look at this one, at least this has some charm to it. Wouldn't call it a great film, but if you love Swamp Thing, I would say give it a look. So this next one, I, I think might be my my pick as the, oh my God, I'm so glad I finally saw that. I'd heard about this movie. I knew what this movie was vaguely, but until I sat down last week and watched it, I'd never seen it. And I am really enamored with Barbarossa. It's about a guy who he accidentally kills somebody and he goes on the run. Uh, his family is upset with him. He's a farmer. He's not really a gunfighter or anything. It's just an accident. The family, of the person he killed, they want him. And so he ends up doing whatever he can to stay ahead of them. And he ends up running into this guy who is a somewhat legendary outlaw named Barbarossa. And that's Willie Nelson. And then gradually... Willie doesn't really want a partner, but he and this kid end up sort of depending on each other and they travel together for a while. And there's this escalating thing between them. The movie's really about being with a legend, somebody who has this larger than life mythology around them, seeing what the reality is and then seeing what the value of that mythology is. Why does personal mythology matter? I think there's something beautiful about the way the film gets at how Barbarossa has built his legend. Why? And then why it's bigger than him. I, I was really engaged by this. I, I love discovering these things. Uh, and, you know, I had seen most of the movies we covered this month. And uh, this one was really enjoyable. I had a really good time with this. Well, Fred Skepsi, who Roxanne is his best known American film. But this probably should have been. This got caught in a weird distribution thing where Universal um, owned it, just didn't want to put it out. And so they treated it pretty poorly when they finally did. It's a real shame because this thing has charm. It has style. It, it's a very big movie in a lot of ways. And I, I think Skepsi's American career should have been very different. I think if people had seen this film, they would have really liked this film. And I think there would have been a good chance for him to become a bigger director and somebody who artists like actors would want to work with, because that's what this really does. Well, it's the best Willie Nelson performance. Oh, he's, he's great. in this. Willie Nelson's always likable, but sometimes he's just kind of like Willie Nelson reading lines. And in this, he is giving a not, not his only but a fully fleshed out, three-dimensional, funny, tragic, touching performance. He's great. Uh, Gary Busey is also very good in the movie, not to take anything away from him. The other part of this is a guy named uh, Bill Whitliff, who is the writer of the movie. And I really didn't connect the dots on him until I watched this, and then I went and started doing my, my digging. Uh, this guy not only loved Westerns, but he had his hands on everything. He's the guy who who adapted Lonesome Dove for television from the Larry Murtry novel, which is a great, great piece of cowboy writing. He and Willie Nelson worked together again on Redheaded Stranger, which was an earlier concept album. And to me, feels like the natural lead up to Barbarossa. Uh, we recently talked about Honeysuckle Rose here. That was his. This guy, I think, was uh, a Raggedy Man was written by him. He is an underrated, fairly unknown writer in a lot of ways who maybe should have a better reputation. I think this guy had just an unbelievably specific thing he loved doing. And not many people working in the early 80s and all the way through the 80s, I think, still had the love and the reverence for it that he did. And I feel like he single handedly kind of kept Westerns going for a little while. Yeah. And another underrated filmmaker, I think, is Costa Gavras. Would you agree, Drew? 
I think, largely forgotten these days, and that's a damn shame. Our next film is Jack Lemmon and Sissy Spacek in a methodical but very engaging kidnapping thriller called Missing. Jack Lemmon. Senator, all they seem to know is that my son is missing. Sissy Spacek. He's been gone two weeks. He could be hurt or tortured. Missing. What happened to my son? We still come to the conclusion that he must be in hiding. You know that he's not in hiding. Our whole neighborhood saw him picked up by a goon squad. A country in chaos. The events portrayed are real. He poked his nose around in a lot of dangerous places. A wife in terror. You think he's dead? The incidents are documented. He said the man must disappear. He knew too much. A father in search of the truth. I'm not going to leave this country till I find my son. Alive or dead. Missing. Based on a true story. Rated PG. Yeah, this is an ugly movie. I, I am freaked out by countries where disappearances uh, happen. South American and Central American countries where that's just politics is normal. It's amazing. There are generations of people that were impacted by this stuff. They just lost family. They just into thin air. And then that's it. That's all the answer you're going to get. And this film, in many ways, is frustrating by design. And that is a tricky thing to do because it is about not being able to ever get an answer for something. Yeah, it is about the bureaucracy. And, and, and in most movies, you think, oh, so-and-so was kidnapped off a street in Chile. And, you know, now we send in the heroes to go. Well, what is, how does that happen in real life? In real life, you have to go through every process and, and you know, I'm sure a ridiculous amount of uh, bureaucracy and red tape. And, and this movie turns that into a suspenseful aspect in that, you know, every time they seem to get close, so-and-so doesn't show up for a meeting. Or they get to the consulate and the person they need isn't there. Jack Lemmon, he's fantastic, of course, it's Jack Lemmon. But what's great about him is that he, he first comes across very officious and very business. I Where's my son? I'm here to do a business deal, basically. that He's doing here there to do a deal and get his son. And then Sissy Spacek is his, uh, his estranged daughter-in-law. They don't really get along at first, but obviously they have to uh, align themselves for a common goal. And they play off each other so well. He, he slowly becomes less caustic as the film goes on, and she becomes a bit more serious as the film goes on. It's not, will they be able to break, uh, break somebody out of prison and get them to safety? It's, will they be able to penetrate this bureaucracy? I find this movie really harrowing emotionally. The genius of what Costa Gravis does is that he plays this at a place where it's a constant simmer. Instead of going for these giant emotional beats, and there's plenty of room for that in this material. This is giant emotional material. I do think that Sissy Spacek and Jack Lemmon together, the idea that they don't get along and that there's all these rough edges to the storytelling and to the characters, and that's where it lands for me. That's where it feels authentic. Not unlike Shoot the Moon, where they're, they are very flawed and sometimes grating characters, but they're so human, you're like, you can forgive the flaws and you can look past the brusque moments and you know that Jack Lemmon is eventually going to show his humanity and you know that Sissy Spacek is going to eventually, you know, grow up just a little bit and realize the gravity of the situation. And they're both so good together. We've mentioned this in other films, but uh, we need to mention the score again. Vangelis. Vangelis, who does... So good.
iconic score, uh, iconic composer, and uh, he, the music in this film is is subtle. It's calm and insidious and gets under your skin quietly, uh, but it's also very melodic and beautiful. Um, it's a it's a haunting film. It's well worth your time. Um, it's a little hard to track down right this minute, but I would definitely say that if you get the chance. It won the Cannes Film Festival, won the Palme d'Or the year it played there, and I get why. It's a film that kind of gets inside you, and I like that. It did win the Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay. Our next two movies, we're going to kind of group them together to talk about them because the press did that. It's weird because they are connected by one thing that is prominent in both films. This shows how reductive that can be when you say these two films are the same because of this, and then you actually watch these two films back to back. The answer is no, these two films have almost nothing in common, and it is offensive to think that this one thing makes them equivalent movies in any way. Uh, We're talking this week about personal best and making love. To him, she was the most beautiful woman in the world. Witty, loving, warm. To her, he was a friend she could always turn to. A lover, a husband. A man as compassionate as he was strong. But there was a need in him he could no longer keep unexplored. I don't know what to do. You gotta tell me, are you in trouble? Is there another woman? Tell me about your mysteries, my friend. How much longer are you gonna wait? Making Love, a love story for the 80s. Starring Michael Antkeen, Kate Jackson, and Harry Hamlin. Personal Best, a film about crossing boundaries, exceeding limitations. Imagine how many bodies you all buried to get here. And giving everything you've got. I could have been a man's coach, backfield coach, Oregon State. I had the job. I had the job. I actually had the job. I don't know what scares you more, getting beat by Tory Skinner or beating it. Personal Best, rated R. Personal Best is the um, dull and aimless directorial debut of Robert Town. Hemingway and Patrice Donnelly are track athletes uh, and lesbians who are mildly coerced by pushy Scott Glenn to become better athletes. Doesn't really tackle gay themes or female issues. It's a movie in which there are two characters who are in a relationship and they happen to be same sex. I remember it being sold as it's about lesbians. It's really not. It's more about sports and it's about the strange dynamic that it takes to be very good at something and especially something that is all about your body, where you are constantly pushing and abusing your body. I like the dynamic between Glenn and uh, Mariel Hemingway and Patrice Donnelly. I think Hemingway and Donnelly do really interesting work that is very casual and very loose. Their performances are quite good. I think Scott Glenn, unfortunately, is kind of like just one note nasty. He has a scene where he, he kind of explains it, and it's funny because you go, well, if that's the whole explanation, then um, you're just a baby. Drew, doesn't it almost seem like the movie was originally going to be like a romantic drama about like the three-way pull between the two women and him? But the movie seems to avoid that in favor of very standard and very dull sports cliches it's interesting because I, I have mixed feelings about it it's it was built to originally i think play out at the olympics and they were going to go and they were going to shoot at the 1980 olympics and they were going to have cameras there and it was going to be a movie where they got the benefit of being on an olympic cycle and they have a lot of real athletes and a lot of medalists in this film as the athletes were watching obviously there was the 1980s uh, boycott of uh, olympics so we didn't go and the film kind of had to refigure what it was and i think they build to a place where 
it's just not the film that Robert Town set out to make. And it had to be incredibly heartbreaking on some level. What I like dramatically is then they built that into the movie. And it's about the fact that these characters aren't going to go to the Olympics and they've trained for it. And then they've got all this frustration and this energy and this thing that they built that they don't get to take anywhere. At least Town got to rewrite and build that into the movie somewhat. Without the quote unquote hook of the two leads being lesbians, it's basically a modernization of Chariots of Fire a year later. But I'll say this. Michael Chapman was the photographer of Raging Bull, was the photographer of Personal Best. I think the photography in Personal Best, in particular the sports stuff and watching sinew and muscle, and as I love that it just shows the stress it puts on bodies. There's that moment where he's sitting at the top of the hill and he's making them run on the beach and then run full speed up the hill towards him. And it's dense sand. And if you've ever run on sand, you know how unbelievably painful that can get and how quickly it's all shot super slow motion. And Michael Chapman just lets you watch Mariel Hemingway and Patrice Donnelly struggle up this hill for a good minute and a half. And it looks like they're going to break. But that's almost all visual language and the visual language versus the screenplay. That's where it confuses me that Town, who is such a lovely writer, didn't give these people a lot to say. Yeah, he's a great writer, but I think personal best indicates why he's not that great of a director. After this, he would do Tequila Sunrise, which is okay. The guy's had a, a voluminous uh, writing career, wrote Chinatown, he wrote so many great films, but I, I just don't think he has a vision as a director in this movie. It just seems like we're going to make a pretty standard sports movie, and hopefully the, the, the idea that you know girls get in bed together uh, will draw in a crowd. I'll say this about our, our the other film, Making Love, which uh, was directed by Arthur Hiller, who, you know, Arthur Hiller had a solid career. I don't think of Arthur Hiller as a particularly great filmmaker. I think of him as a good, solid filmmaker who made a number of good, solid movies. And this movie is about being gay. That is the only thing this movie has on its mind. And I have to say, it's quaint when you look at it now. Yeah, quaint's a word for it. Uh- you know, on one hand, you want to you want to applaud these films because, you you know, nowadays we think back to the early 80s and we, we don't think of progressive films that are, are putting uh, capable, intelligent, you know, gay characters into legitimate dramatic stories. So I admire Personal Best and, and Making Love for telling stories about gay people in a time when that was not common. And the press that month really was about this as a turning point that we were starting to see it more and more often. And this is not long after cruising, which, you know, the gay community rightfully was very upset about the way they were portrayed on film and where they saw themselves and how they saw themselves. And, you know, a lot of times you would get um, relegated to like when we saw Only When I Laugh, the Marsha Mason movie a couple of weeks ago. You know, James Coco in that film got Oscar nominated for playing the confirmed bachelor. The archetype at the time that was the old unmarried gay man who basically they desexualize him completely. So it's very palatable. You don't ever see James Coco with anybody in that movie. That was typically how gay, if it was handled at all, was handled up until this point. The really remarkable landmark moment here has to be the moment where Michael Ankeen and Harry Hamlin kiss and lay down on bed together. And I got to imagine in 1982, that felt shocking. And at least this film is about somebody who is not going back and forth and really not sure what they are. It's about somebody who realizes I have different desires than I thought I did, and I have to do something about it. The problem is it's played in a very TV movie. This is big and important way. It's so sincere that it becomes a little bit ridiculous. Uh, I imagine this film was tough to cast. These are mostly TV actors. And God bless her. Kate Jackson 
not to carry a film. Harry Hamlin and Michael Onkin have, have a bit more gravity to them, but they're mostly, they, they seem to be cast for their chins, their, their handsome faces. It's clumsily written and sort of pretentious. It has these moments where the characters just talk to the camera, like the interviews in Drew's beloved Reds, only they're not real people. They're the characters just talking at the screen as if lecturing people. And it's like, look, you you have the money and the, and the ability to make a movie about gay issues. Don't just sit there and talk at the audience. Tell us the story. But, you know, as a romantic melodrama with a theme that we don't see very often in this era, it's watchable. You know, hats off to both studios. Like you said, at the time, it could not have been easy to support these movies. And I do like the fact that they are benchmarks on the way towards a larger representational cinema. You know, it's kind of weird, though, is that they're both pretty obscure. Neither film is all that great, but one could say that they were very important. They not only serve that purpose, but if you go and you watch them in the context of them coming out back to back, it really does give you a sense of where we were in the conversation at that moment. Drew said that Barbarossa might be his favorite discovery of this episode, but now we move to what might be my favorite discovery of this episode, David S. Ward's adaptation of Steinbeck's Cannery Row. Looking for something a little different, then just peel back the lid <laughs> on Cannery Row. A beer milkshake. The last place you'd expect a love story is on Cannery Row, rated PG. I had never seen this film before two weeks ago. It was just one of those movies. I knew the poster. I knew who the, I liked the cast. Was it a musical? Is it a comedy? Is it a drama? What is it? I don't know. And never really had any interest in digging it up until I started this show. While it's not a perfect film, it's a lot of fun. I don't know if a Steinbeck scholar would call it a faithful adaptation of both Cannery Row and Sweet Thursday. But as a film, I kind of like it. It's interesting that we're doing this and the next film back to back, because I think both of them are movies where you've got guys who had a lot of 70s clout that they were now cashing in on visions that were very, very artificial and that were very big. And so here you've got Richard McDonald as the production designer, and he built these massive sets that are Cannery Row. They, you know, they had to open sound stages and build these sets between them because they're so gigantic. And he wanted to create this whole workable environment that his cast could kind of live and be in. Uh, Sven Nyquist shot the film, and it is beautiful. I don't buy anything about the central relationship. And for me, that is the thing that drives a stake right through the heart of this movie for me. It's Nick Nolte and Deborah Winger as a couple, and uh, she's new in town, and he is a local self-styled marine biology expert who collects animals off the beach and sells them to museums and um, also seems to uh, have an interest in the actual biology of these creatures. There's a plot threads having to do with octopi. There's a, an amusing bit where uh, a, a, a deluge of frogs end up being used as currency. I just like the uh, the vignette style of the film. I don't know if I fully, like Drew, if I fully in, invest in the Deborah Winger, Nick Nolte romance, although they're both charming characters and they're both good performers in the film. I don't know if they necessarily have that chemistry. I think my favorite performance in the movie is probably Audra Lindley, who we know is Mrs. Roper. And I really like her in this. I think there's a no-nonsense quality to her and she is really warm and funny. She plays the uh, the madam of a local brothel and she is very matter-of-fact and very funny and dry. And, yeah, she's one of the most entertaining things in the movie. Also, Frank McRae, 
always good. He was playing kind of a, a dim character, but he finds the nobility in him. And Frank McRae, I've loved since 1941. Uh, really a fun, likable actor. M. Emmett Walsh has a lot of funny bits in this movie. David S. Ward, who who is famous for, of course, writing The Sting. One of the great Hollywood screenplays, like, ever. And it put him not just on the map, but it made him a giant get for studios. He cashed every chip in to make Cannery Row. Oh, I made a big hit and you'll give me the keys to the city for one movie? Okay, this is what I want Steinbeck. That's what I want to make. I think Steinbeck is like Hemingway and he's like certain other authors where I don't know that I believe you can do a film version of his work and have it be his work because so much of it is language driven. I think by using John Huston as the narrator, they're trying to get Steinbeck's words into the mouth of somebody so that there's some of that language. Yeah, while I like the narration by John Huston, it does feel like a Band-Aid. I found myself very bemused, not necessarily thrilled or in love, but bemused by this movie. And I mean that with respect. I mean, like, I've never seen Nick Nolte and Deborah Winger dance in a silly fashion like this. I've never seen M. Emmett Walsh and Frank McRae jump through a swamp and try and grab all these frogs. There, there's a lot of uh, fun movie stuff in this that I've never seen. And while I can see why this movie didn't necessarily make a dent at the box office and why critics may have dismissed it, I had a perfectly good time watching Cannery Row. All right. Well, this next one is a fascinating example of what happens when you are able to do anything you want and you don't know where you're going. It is Francis Coppola's One from the Heart. Francis Coppola, who brought you The Godfather and Apocalypse Now, takes a light look at love in a spectacular way. This one's from the heart. One from the heart. A new kind of old-fashioned romance. This one's from the heart. One from the heart. Rated R. Infamous, ill-fated, legendarily bad. Well, disastrous, at least financially. And a movie that was supposed to make Zoetrope independent, American Zoetrope, and instead basically ended their ability to be a functional standalone company. I don't understand how that thing blew up to over $20 million. Like Cannery Row, Coppola wanted to shoot everything on a stage from a remote location, he was he was adapting this then new technology of being able to direct from inside of a, a what a trailer, yeah, a trailer, hooray! I don't have to be on set anymore. And you know what? As genius as Francis Ford Coppola is in some respects, the older I get, the less patience I have with this man. <laughs> well, I think he and he and Lucas have a very distinct similarity, which is they both are thinking almost all the time about the tools they are using to tell the story. And the tools become very important to them in many ways. And I think this is a movie where the tools defined what the project was. And so you get this crazy artificial vision of a film that is set entirely in a Las Vegas built on a soundstage. And it is a musical where there's music almost all the way through it, but not from the characters on screen. That is meant to be more a commentary on what we're watching. Uh, it feels like it is all one big breath that he goes to the beginning. <gasps> all right. First, there's these two people and they can't stand each other. And they're still in love with their living a house together. Then she moves out. And then he's doing this. And then she's doing this. And she meets Raul Julia. And he wants to meet uh, Natasha Kinski. And she's a trapeze artist. And <gasps> Drew, uh, true or false. You agree with me on these two points. One, Terry Gar, really good in a not very good film. Terry Gar is really good in this. I have to say, though, part of me feels like this entire thing was a scheme by Francis Coppola to see Terry Gar naked three times a day. Terry Gar 
in an alternate universe would have had like a Jennifer Aniston career before Jennifer Aniston. Uh, Frederick Forrest is her co-star. And while Frederick Forrest is always good, uh, boy, is he miscast in this movie. That's the thing. Coppola wanted him to be his movie star. And you can tell that he kept pushing to make Forrest a movie star. Forrest is a phenomenal actor who shouldn't be this lead. Not at all. And at least not at this point in his career. You know, Tom Waits wrote the music, wrote the score. Crystal Gale sings most of the songs. I flat out hate this score. I hate everything about this score because the entire score is Tom Waits and Crystal Gale singing about what they're watching. I look, I like Tom Waits. I like what he does. I love God. There's a song of his called Step Right Up. It's one of my five or six favorite things. And I think he can be great. But this movie is you're watching a movie about two people you hate who are invested in a love affair you don't care about, who are terrible to one another, and they live in the worst city in the world and seem to fit in perfectly. And the entire time Tom Waits is sitting next to you going, and then the piano jumped upside down and the bathtub's full of vinegar. What are you doing? It's unreal yeah, after it is, a while. It is uh, similar to how Frederick Forrest is a great actor who is just not appropriate for this character. This should be Henry Mancini. That's what this should be. This should not be Tom Waits. Everything in this movie is piffle except the Tom Waits score. Raul Julia comes in and he he's throwing million watt charisma at this thing and can't do and, anything. And Natasha Kinski, charming as hell. One of her, maybe one of her best acting performances, because I never really thought she was that great of an actor in the 80s. She's really good in this. I like Harry Dean Stanton as his, his sort of pathetic buddy. And Lainey Kazan is working her ass off, too. But man, I got to say flat out, I have given this film, I think every five or six years I've gone back and given this film another try. And this viewing, I am never watching One from the Heart again. I'm done. I've seen it. I get it. And I don't want it. One from the Heart just reeks of arrogance, man. This movie should have cost 12 million bucks, should have come out, should have made 20 and everyone would have been happy. But this is just making a, a giant machine out of a beautiful little hill. Like, oh, we built an airport in a studio. Who cares? Well, speaking of movies that are almost entirely set inside a studio or a set and that make the absolute most out of what they're doing. I loved it when I saw it in a theater. It remains one of my favorite theatrical experiences from this year. I'm struck by how brilliant and difficult and truly miraculous in some ways the mere existence is of Das Boot. Columbia Pictures presents The Boat. The film critics and audiences love. A naval epic told with quiet compassion and precise detail. The Boat, a brilliant thriller destined to become a classic. A masterpiece so exciting it is irresistible. The Boat, now in English, rated R. It's one of the best war movies I've ever seen. It's the best submarine thriller I've ever seen. And, and even more than that, it was one of the first films in, that I ever watched in a foreign language and realized, hey, this is not some indecisive, you know, I'm, I'm a kid, you know, I'm 15 or 16, but this is not that tough. People are the same all over. When you're 15 or 16 and you, all you know is America this and America that, and other countries are either our friends or our enemies, and that's all we know. And then you watch a film like Das Boot or Gallipoli when you're younger really opens you up to realize that, you know what, the human condition is not exclusive to your neighborhood or your country. It is universal. And here's why that this movie is so fascinating to me, because 
you spend this entire movie 100% empathizing with these characters. You're with them in the boat. You're watching everything that happens to them as they are in the middle of warfare. And you are on their side because that's what film does. When you're watching a movie and you are completely pulled into these people, you begin to empathize with them and feel for them. And then every now and then there's a close-up of Jurgen Prock now, and you'll realize that right smack dab in the middle of that hat he's wearing is the captain of the U-boat. Oh, yeah, there's a swastika. Oh, shit, that's right. They're fighting for Germany in World War II. And there is this weird thing the film does where you get totally pulled in on their side. That is both, I think, ferociously smart on the part of the filmmakers. Wolfgang Peterson, the uh, filmmaker here, does this terrific job of making you understand the human side of living on a u-boat and working on a u-boat and what it's like what those little victories are and what it was like to be trapped and what it was like to be under fire and what it was like to fire on somebody else and after a while man it politics goes out the window and what you're watching is just human beings trying to survive an insane situation that's the difference to me between sympathy and empathy obviously i would never have sympathy for a nazi soldier but why shouldn't a german filmmaker tell a story about the war from the German perspective, where these were soldiers who were enlisted into the army and most of them didn't want to fight and didn't know what they were getting into. Like, that's all honest. This is not a pro-Nazi uh, propaganda film. This is showing that war is miserable hell, regardless of what side you're on. And I never thought, as a Jewish kid who loved movies, I never thought for one iota uh, that it was strange for me to love Das Boot because uh, it, these represent, quote unquote, the enemy. These are human beings. And, and that's what makes the film so fascinating is that it does challenge you to be like, on one hand, God, these poor guys, I, I hope they escape this horrible torpedo barrage. And on the other hand, you're like, wait, they aren't going to be Nazi soldiers. Like, that's where they're going. That's what they are. And and that's challenging. You know, this is, it's a movie that when I saw it as a kid, I was completely dazzled by it and taken into the uh, the world of it. And I thought it worked beautifully. I look at it now and the more of the seams are visible, it is clear what, you know, where Peterson was pushing the boundaries of what he could or couldn't do. And you can never really get around the fact that when you're photographing miniatures on water, water doesn't look right. It just looks like a bathtub and always will. But holy God, does this thing play? I mean, it is so tense and it is so uncomfortable in places. The claustrophobia in this, he makes it so clear that the entire submarine is a torpedo tube, that when you've got the soldiers and like they need to dive faster and he orders everybody to one end of the boat or the other and they run down those tubes and they're all and the cameras racing down behind him and they built it so that you can go from one end of the sub to the other in one shot. It is breathtaking filmmaking, and you can see how alive Peterson is and how his cast is 100% involved with him. I think the film is terrific in the theatrical cut. There is a much, much longer cut. If you want to see a four-hour, almost a five-hour cut of this movie, it's out there. I, I honestly don't remember which cut I've seen. I believe what I've seen was about two and a half hours long. The 1981 theatrical cut is 150 minutes, so it's two and a half on the dot. It's great. The Blu-ray, if you get it now, there is a Blu-ray that has a basically a five-hour cut of the movie and also has the original theatrical. All right. Now, is that five-hour cut? Is that worth? I've watched it, and what I, f what I think is interesting about it is it does give you more context for who these human beings are and how they relate to the larger war going on around them. And you realize that not everybody on that boat sympathizes with what's going on. Not everybody on the boat is happy. But that stuff I, d I don't think works as well, and I think it starts to skew it towards being a different film. I think the film that Peterson finally released in theaters, the, the original theatrical cut, is so, at two and a half hours, somehow lean and mean and 
really works. And there are sequences in this movie that filmmakers have been ripping off ever since and will always rip off when it comes to submarine stuff because they got it perfect. After this, director Wolfgang Peterson would uh, hit Hollywood and he would turn out uh, his next film would be The NeverEnding Story and then Enemy Mine. Uh, Drew, what's interesting about Das Boot is that while it was nominated for six Oscars and didn't win any, it was not nominated for Best Foreign Language Film. That's crazy, because it really, to me, that seems like that would have been the slam dunk, because it was a commercial hit here, and it was a film that really plays to audiences, and so often it feels like the Best Foreign Language Film, especially at the Oscars, is a movie that typical audiences are never going to sit down for. I have to assume that, you know, that's the producer's call. If you have a film that, you know, you put it in either this slot or that slot and they chose to put it in the, you know, regular slot. Uh, just for history's sake, we'll mention that it was nominated for sound effects editing, film editing, best sound, uh, Jost Vacano for cinematography, uh, Wolfgang Peterson for adapted screenplay and for best director, but not best picture. That to me, that is a summation of what a perfect, weird grab bag month looks like. Highs, lows, interesting films, totally different stuff all over the map february 82 was weird but really enjoyable to kind of work my way through this time and march is uh kind of similar so yeah next time uh when we come back uh we're gonna have a jill clayberg drama about drug dependency we're going to have a ripoff that was so much of a ripoff that it got chased legally off of screens we're going to have a charming agatha christie mystery we're going to have a horror film that i was scared to watch until this year uh, and now can't believe I ever avoided. And we are going to do, in my opinion, at least two genuine classics. It is quite a weird month, and I am looking forward to it. Big laughs, big thrills, big disasters. March 1982. Until then, I'm Drew McQueenie. I'm Scott Weinberg. Thank you all for listening. We love you. <laughs>